Today is the fourth Sunday of Epiphany. The, the season of Epiphany is, is much more than just a block of time that separates Christmas from Lent. Actually, this year it's a fairly long block of time because we don't start Lent until March. But it's, it's a season in which we, we focus our attention on God in a special way. To have an epiphany is for a light to come on or to be given a new understanding of something. Oh, now I get it. We, we currently have a young man living in our house from, who's from a part of the world where it is actually summer. And we did some math the other day. We figured with the wind chill here, it was minus 40. And with the humidex where he lived before he came here, it was plus 50. So that's a differential of 90 degrees. Uh, and thinking, why are you here, man? It's cold. Uh, th this picture was from last week's newspaper. Uh, it's taken on Archibald Street, and it describes how we feel here in Winnipeg this winter. Anyway, I, I'm not talking about the winter or the weather. I commented to Wendy the other day that this young lad living in our house was eating this amazingly good-looking, sugary cereal. And I'm eating this healthy, taste-like-cardboard cereal. And I said to her, what's with that? And she said, well, he's young and he's fit. And she didn't have to finish the sentence, did she? <laughs> but then later I had an epiphany. It came to me that if I was on death row and they came to me and they said, what do you want for your last meal? I'd say, bring me a jumbo box of Frosted Flakes and, and two liters of half and half. And then the next day, I was in Safeway, and I had another epiphany. I'm not likely to end up on death row the way I'm living. I, you know, I don't... So why wait? So I went down the cereal aisle, and the, the big family-sized box of Frosted Flakes was on sale, and that was a sign, right? So for the last couple of days, I've fallen off the health wagon, as it were. Uh, but, but the cereals, I'm making a big dent in it, so this won't last much longer. The season of Epiphany challenges us to keep our eyes fixed on the One, the One, the Son of God, Jesus, whose entrance into our world we celebrated at Christmas. And in fact, the first story in Epiphany every year is the story of the wise men, the Gentiles, coming to acknowledge Jesus and worship Him. Now, each week during Epiphany, we focus on Jesus in a, in a special way with the desire to gain some new understanding of who he is and, and some new understanding of what he's done for us, some, some coming away from an Epiphany service saying, yes, that's what Jesus has done. Yes, that's who Jesus is. Or maybe to remember something that we once knew but have long since forgotten. Now, the four Bible readings that are appointed for this Sunday in Epiphany are united by an emphasis on the result of salvation, an emphasis on what it means for us to be saved. I, I take the four readings that are, that are there for a Sunday, and I, and I go through and I look for common words, and I circle them, and, and salvation seemed to be showing up in, in these readings. But they each have different imagery. Uh, in the psalm, the topic of salvation, which is Psalm 51, is introduced by a question. David says, who, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who, who may enter into, the presence, into your presence on your holy hill? Well, the answer is obvious to us. It's, it's those who are saved who have those privileges. 
So the question really asked by David was, who can be saved? Who can be saved? The Old Testament reading is from the prophet Micah, in which he speaks to us of salvation using the imagery of the Exodus. Salvation is that great event through which God has released us from slavery. In the case of the first Exodus, it was an enslavement to the authorities in Egypt and the genocide associated with that. In our case, it's a release from slavery to sin. The New Testament reading that we heard Henry read is from 1 Corinthians 1. And in there we, we heard that those who were saved are the ones who have discovered the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross. He says in verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God. Now the gospel reading is from Matthew 5, and, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But right now, let's go back to the Old Testament. We hear David asking the question, who can be saved? Who qualifies to enter God's presence? His answer is simple. Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. So blameless. What does that look like? What does that mean? He offers a list of righteous behaviors that would identify us or mark us as, as blameless. Tell the truth. Don't gossip. Keep your promise, even if it hurts. The issue for David seems to be integrity, fairness, right way of treating people. But then he adds that the blameless are also those who despise sin and who honor the followers of God. Those who lend money without charging interest and cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Salvation in this Davidic psalm seems to be wrapped up in some kind of behavior, doing the right thing. Now let's go to Micah, the prophet, chapter 6. Turn it to it, if you would, in your Bible. I'm not sure I was going to write down the page number. So Chris is going to find it and tell me the page number of Micah 6 really fast, I hope. 706, thank you. In this chapter, we, we find ourselves in the middle of a legal controversy. And as with most controversies, there are two sides. On the one side, we see God, and he's got a complaint, a grievance. On the other side, we see God's people, the Israelites. And the mountains where Israel lives the mountains that have been there through all the history of God's relationship with his people are called to be witnesses. It's like a courtroom. Two sides and a witness. And this is what we find in verse 1. Follow with me. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Now there's an odd shift here. We almost expect the voice of an angry God. But that's not what we hear. Verse 3. Oh my people, 
What have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I saved you, he says. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed? And how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from the Achaia Grove to Gilgal? And when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? In spite of all that God had done for them, Israel had grown tired of God. It's it's not quite the depiction of sin that we might have expected. We, We don't see God as angry. We see him as sorrowful, aggrieved. You've forgotten me. How might we today forget God? Individually, as a church, it's a serious charge. I did all this for you, but you've forgotten me. Well, the prophet Micah knows that it's a serious charge, so now we hear Micah's voice. First we hear a narrator, then we hear God, and now we hear Micah. The prophet speaks. What can we bring to the Lord? It's as if he's saying to all the other Israelites who have brought God to this courtroom with this complaint. What can we bring to the Lord? What kind of offerings should we bring him? Should we bow before God with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Should we? Should we? Should we? And I can almost picture a pause while Micah waits for them to think about that. What is their answer? But then he says, no. No. Not more sacrifices that we need. Micah's answer is direct and profound. Look at verse 8. No, not more sacrifices. O people, the Lord has taught you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Maybe we've acted like we've grown tired of God and different, taken it for granted. What should we do? Do justice. Treat other people rightly. Be in a right relationship with other people. I was thinking, we, we need to do a whole Sunday school class on some of these minor prophets, but I'm not sure how we're going to do that. Do justice. Love mercy. Kindness. Not, not just any kind of kindness, but a rugged, faithful kindness. Always there, ready to be kind. Love mercy or kindness, and be humble before God. It just means remember who you are and remember who God is. Remember. Now, just as we saw in the Psalms, salvation appears to have something to do with how we live. Right behavior, God's behavior. It has a lot to do with how we treat other people. Now, this doing right things seems to be salvation. 
But this is not the gospel as we know it, or as we've heard it. What we know is this. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So no one can boast about it. Now, there's no contradiction here between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I don't think so, anyway. Paul is concerned with this question. How do we obtain salvation? How do we get saved? And he says, it's grace and faith. The question presented by the Old Testament writers that we're looking at this morning, Micah and David, they're more concerned with the how will we live once we're saved question. How will we live once we have been saved? That's their issue. And for them, there's a short answer to that question. We will be like our God, like Father, like Son. We're saved so that we might become like God. God is merciful and kind. We should be merciful and kind. God is just. We should be just. God is blameless. We should be blameless. God is generous. We should be generous. Those are just a few of the things that we might fasten on for just a moment. Being saved, you see, involves a lot more than just simply being rescued from the fires of hell. It is that, for sure, yes, and that's a great thing. But it's much, much more than that. Being saved is about becoming like God. We're doing a, a, a couple of groups that I'm involved with at U of M are reading through C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. And for some of these students, it's their first introduction to C.S. Lewis, and I keep trying to get them to read some of the other stuff, too. I keep almost every week mentioning, now you should also read this and this and this, uh, weighing them down with this reading. But in screw tape letters, you have this, this fictional account of an older demon writing to his nephew, a younger demon, who is in charge of a patient a human person that that demon is trying to usher into the hands of the devil. And this older screw tape is a bit like older preachers. He likes to get off in a rant every now and then and, and just off on a little bunny trail. And he does it often with this angry tone of voice. And in letter 8, he says this, One must face the fact, this is the old demon writing to the younger one, that all the talk about his love, meaning God's love, for men, and his service being perfect freedom, is not, as one would gladly want to believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life, on its miniature scale, will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. He's saying God wants us to be like him, not because he 
absorbs us into himself, making us like him, but rather because we seek to conform our wills to his. In mere Christianity, Lewis took it a bit deeper. He said, now if the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ, then every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. That brings me to the reading from the gospel for today. It's the Beatitudes. I bet you at least half of us memorized it. I can't very well do it from memory right now, though, though I have memorized it. So let's read it together. Let's read it in unison from the screen. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sort of evil things against you because you were my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Did you notice all those words that we've seen in the Old Testament readings this morning? Pure in heart, which is the equivalent of blameless, and, and justice, and humility, and mercy. You see, when we look at the Beatitudes, we're looking at what we're supposed to look like. The Beatitudes are given to followers of Jesus, those who are saved. But if you look at the Beatitudes, you begin to realize you're looking at Jesus. Because Jesus fits this description all the way down to the bottom where he's persecuted and executed. God's plan is to transform those of us who have been saved into the likeness of his son, to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. Wendy sent me a blog this last week that quoted Bono, the leader of the uh, rock and roll group U2. And he's a Christian. And he's describing in this little thing that she sent me the difference between karma and grace. Grace, he said, doesn't excuse my mistakes. And he says, I got a lot. He says, I'm holding out that Jesus, too, my sins, that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out does not come back to us, that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. death. It's not our own good works that get through to the gates of heaven. He's talking about grace and the salvation of Jesus. But then he said this, and this is what caught my eye. If only we those of us who are saved, could be a bit more like him, like Jesus, the world would be transformed.
the world would be transformed. Now I know he's a rock and roll singer and not a theologian or a preacher, but I think he's got it right. I think he's bang on. The more those of us who are saved follow the will of God and become like Jesus, the more this world's going to be changed. Does that sound daunting? Of course it does. Be stupid to say it didn't. But let me give you two more verses to encourage you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 So all of us who have had this veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. God is changing us, remaking us, transforming us to be like Himself. And then from Philippians 2. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, Paul says. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. This business of transformation, well, God starts it. God empowers it. God makes it happen. But we have to show up with a good will and say, yes, Father, change me, transform me, make me like your son. But not only do we show up with a good will, we, we begin to develop some new habits, some godly habits. And we apply our will to the development of those godly habits. We practice kindness. We practice mercy. We look for ways to be gentle with other people. It may be a corrective gentleness, but it's still gentle. We look for ways to do justice. We look for ways that we can live in right relationships with other people. How do we do that? Well, David told us in Psalm 15. How do we do justice? We speak the truth. We refuse to gossip or speak evil of our neighbors, our friends, our family. We keep promises even if it's hard to do. We lend without taking advantage of people. We're generous. This is how we do justice. This is how we live in a right relationship with other people. And we can cultivate those habits. You can cultivate the habit of speaking well about other people, not gossiping. You can cultivate the habit of being generous. That's you working out, as Paul says, your salvation knowing that it's God who gives you the desire to do that and the power to do that. We used to sing this truth to each other a, a lot in our, in our worship. Uh, at least I can remember a time. I'd like you to take your hymn book out of the, the pew. Turn to page 387. I'm not going to make you sing, because if I make you sing, you'll be singing notes, and Philip would be looking around at seeing who's singing notes and he'd be taking names but so we'll not do that but but 387 look at the title oh to be like thee look at the first verse oh to be like thee blessed redeemer this is my constant longing and prayer gladly i'll forfeit all of earth's treasures jesus thy perfect likeness to bear what a statement 
And as we'd sing this out loud, we'd sing it to each other, we'd encourage each other to live this way. Uh, turn over to page 388, next page. I would be like Jesus. Look at the chorus. Be like Jesus. This is my song in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all the day long. I would be like Jesus. Uh, turn over to, to uh, number 390. May the mind of Christ my Savior. Uh, look at the last verse. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. And may they forget the channel, seeing only him. He's, he's echoing the prayer of St. Francis. Um, not St. Francis, St. Patrick, who's basically saying, when, when people look at me, I don't want them to see me. I want them to see Jesus. I want them to see Jesus. Uh, page 400, and then I'll, I'll quit with the hymn book. Uh, I want to be like Jesus. I have one deep supreme desire that I may be like Jesus. To this I fervently aspire that I may be like Jesus. I want my heart as throne to be so that a watching world may see his likeness shining forth in me. I want to be like Jesus. All I'm saying is that we need to encourage each other in this application of our wills towards the development of godly habits towards having our lives transformed to be like Jesus. We need to encourage each other. We do it through our singing and our worship, but we also do it when we see someone do something, no matter how small, and we say, boy, that was Christ-like what you did. We're not saying that to make them proud, heaven forbid. We're saying that to encourage them to keep it up. Keep aspiring to be like Jesus so the world, when they look at us, the people around us, in our family, in our home, in our neighborhood, in our school, in our work, will see Christ-likeness because that will change this world. Let us pray. Lord, it is by grace that we've been saved and we give you thanks for this and praise. We thank you for your grace. But yet we are called as those who are saved to become like you. And together this morning we affirm and bring our will to this and say we with the good will and the power of God will be like Jesus. This is what we have learned on this Epiphany Sunday. Jesus, you didn't come just to save us from hell, from sin, from death. You came to make us like you. And we affirm that we want to accept that part of your will. For we pray it in your name. Amen.